Welcome back to Podcast 99. I'm Ryan Lichten here with Parks Miller. And uh, today we have a couple of sets to talk about going down the timeline here. This is our day two, part eight coverage of Woodstock 99. But uh, before we go into it, we had a doozy of a last episode, the Limp Bizkit legends. Oh, yeah. Big legend here. Yes. Big legend. The I don't want to say the biggest, but it it could be argued. Uh, and you know we we, we just talked a we just talked way too much about Limp Bizkit last time. Yeah, and and we still have a little <laughs> bit more to say. Yeah, we did it too much last time, and there's still more. So yes, okay, real quick, and we're gonna burn through these just to fucking because we said we would. But there was a couple samples that we mentioned or wanted to play in the last episode that we just couldn't find. Or we, you know, just like stonered it or whatever. Um, but real quick, this is the clip of Vern Troyer of Austin Powers fame introducing Limp Biscuit on stage on the East stage at Woodstock 99. You want the worst? Well, you got the worst. And that's really a funny one, a because it's Vern Troyer and he's like, like if you watch the video, if you can find the video, he's decked out in like a little leather vest. And I don't mean to say little. I mean, obviously, it's little like, I don't know. Sorry. It's just out of hat. I don't know. But like leather pants and like fucking rocker jewelry. And he's like giving like horns and like middle fingers a lot. And uh, he um, he's having a good time. Well, yeah, he's having a good time. And everyone's fucking like going ape shit over him. And he what he said, the, the reason why he says you wanted the the worst, you got the worst. It's it's Limp Bizkit that that's what they open with on their album that was coming out. That's like a sample. Oh, yeah. And it was like, if you wanted the best, go buy a Backstreet Boys CD. But then it's funny because then they play that whole bit before they come out on stage anyways. Right. <laughs> but yeah, so that that's the Vern Troyer oh, one. Um, when we mentioned that the set had to be stopped and that Fred, you know, was told to tell the crowd to mellow out or what have you, I realized in our intro bit that you hear at, at the start of every episode where he says too many people are getting hurt. When you hear that, that's Fred Durst during that moment. Um, but I can't remember like cause we just have like these we found these videos where it's like two hours each worth of uh, news footage, you know. And right. And I don't know which one. Like, I, I really got to do some digging there, to pull that shit out. There's some crazy YouTube uploaded mash up things. I mean, these pro could have been ripped like from the news, like on VHS and then uploaded and kind of compiled in a pretty disorganized fashion. There's a couple videos like that. Yeah, no, like, definitely it could have been something from there, you know. No. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that one. Um, And then let's see. This is an important piece of trivia that uh, we failed to mention. Uh, the bus, the school bus driver from the show The Simpsons, Otto, he met one of his girlfriends during Limp Bizkit's set at Woodstock 99 in an episode of The Simpsons. Uh, let's relive that classic moment really quick. Otto, since when have you had a girlfriend? We met in the summer of love. 
Yeah, classic uh, Simpsons trivia there and Woodstock 99 trivia. And then this one's also uh, pretty, pretty important. This is Jonathan Davis from Corn. And now we we've gone super in depth into the difference between the corn mosh pit and the Limp Bizkit mosh pit. And uh, we're going to talk about another really notorious mosh pit on this episode. But uh, each one is like a different monster. You know what I mean? It's like the game Rampage, like for Super Nintendo, where it's like there's like the giant like gorilla. There's like a giant wolf and there's like a reptile. Like they're all different monsters. Um, But this is Jonathan Davis kind of passing the buck on to, you know, uh, on to Limp Bizkit as far as why Woodstock 99 went the way it did. We rocked that place that first night, and everybody had fun. The second night, the biscuit it up for everybody. <laughs> they really did. Yeah, he definitely. Yeah, like you say, he throws them. He's throwing them under the bus completely. You know, these are friends. These are homies here, and he's, he's. I think he's distancing himself. Yeah, biscuit, and they pro- they probably had to have a beer. You know, a few months after that, talk it out because yeah, I would be pissed if I was Fred Durst. I wonder, I mean, oh man, it's been so long. We're approaching the 20th anniversary. Like, I really wonder if they even think about it. Like, I know that Korn thought about it recently because I fucking saw them. (laughs) Like, I I met them and I made them sign uh, my Korn. Well, didn't make them. You know, you don't make Korn do anything. But uh, they signed, you know, a bunch of Woodstock 99 stuff for me. And I saw Jonathan Davis's Woodstock 99 outfit. But like, does Fred Durst ever like think about that? You know, like, and I'm, I'm sure he, I don't know. And also dude, like I'm anticipating like a, a a nice little news resurgence of Woodstock 99 retrospectives part due to just the 20th anniversary of like something crazy that happened, but also with Woodstock 50 approaching. Um, Absolutely. And uh, we, you did, you just posted on uh, the Instagram and I guess the, the timing will be uh, different when this episode comes out, but, they had another little hiccup yeah. for Woodstock 50, which we should mention. Oh, no, definitely. They've had a few, actually. Um, so, yeah, that that's all. That Those are the samples from the Limp Bizkit episode that we deprived you of last time. We are done talking about Limp Bizkit. So, yes, moving on to Woodstock 50, uh, the elephant in the room. They've had troubles from the start, from the announcing. Mm-hmm. I mean, A, no one was right. hyped on it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, it really hasn't been getting any, like, Besides the press coming out about the things going wrong with it, it's not like, oh, blah, 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 confirmed for Woodstock 50, this confirmed for that. Like, like look at this cool stuff they're trying to do because they're really trying to push activism and, and uh, charities and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But no one seems to care. And uh, the only stories that have popped up, like one that we didn't talk about, is that one of the main bands that was playing, um, which would have delivered some 69 vibes for sure, was the Black Keys, and they dropped off. Apparently, it was due to a scheduling conflict, but like, uh, I don't really know about that. That seems kind of sketchy. Right. Also, there was a thing happening where um, payments were delayed to some of the artists, like the deposits that they like needed to secure mm-hmm. in order to play, like were late. And finally, the wire transfers went through so they could officially say that, you know, Jay-Z was playing or or whatever. Um, and then, yeah, the new thing that just came out 
is that now ticket sales are being delayed because they weren't approved for the permits that they needed, which happened right. with Woodstock 99, which yeah, happened with Woodstock the, 69. The episode we did, yeah. The, the episode that Ryan and I did where we just went into that, uh, the tape, it's just like, that is exactly what happened in 99. Yeah. And that, like, the thing about the Black Keys, I don't, I don't want to necessarily read too much into it because I feel like, you know, that kind of stuff might happen in any festival where you got a big headliner and then some something happens, you know? So, like, that, that really could be, you know, indicative of, like, a more common festival. Yeah, but I mean, the, uh, yeah. But the, the whole, the scheduling thing and just the ticket stuff, it, it's interesting because that, that does feel, it's almost like, is this the only way Lang knows how to do things like, <laughs> poorly? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, no, I think it, here's the deal. It's like Woodstock 69. No one wanted that to happen because something like that hadn't really happened before. You know, festivals weren't like they were coming into their own just as a thing, you know, not even as like a cultural phenomenon, but just as like an, a kind of concert, you know, and and hippies were so looked down upon and demonized at the time that no one wanted them there. So, of course, it was going to be impossible to get permits, but they did it. Then it became Woodstock, you know, this cultural landmark. And then from there, 94, I don't think they ran into those kinds of problems because they're like, well, it's Woodstock. Like, of course, we want to host like another one. And then that one was such right. a fucking mess that that's why no yeah. one wanted to do Woodstock 99. And you can fucking bet your ass that the reason why no one wants to do Woodstock 50 is because of Woodstock 99. You know, right. it's like well, they had one not, yeah. they had one chance, one chance. Right. You know, well, I so now this this would be pretty behind the scenes stuff, but I definitely could envision a scenario in which now, especially that Woodstock is trying to come back on their 50th anniversary. They are probably encountering this thing where now for uh, definitely for the last 20 years since 99 there have been so many festivals and like i feel like that process has been incredibly streamlined and so it's almost i could i could imagine some egos being in the room where lang's like well i started this kind of thing but he is not like like actively doing this shit every year like i mean some of these festival organizers are having multiple festivals every year yeah no definitely and, yeah and they've got it down and then it's almost like this guy's like well i you know i started it but like i don't know i feel like shit has changed so quickly especially in the last 20 years so again i mean i hope it doesn't like end in disaster i mean i guess in the nature of the i'd podcast, rather it just not happen but, um you know but uh, yeah actually no fuck that like i want no i want flames it's, i want I looting mean, it's gonna happen yeah, <laughs> I, I want all that fucking shit. Maybe but you know what? People aren't like that anymore. Revolution. People are fucking wimps. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just in general, we've become wimps. Like I'm a wimp. Like you know, like we're wimps. Like I'm not. I'm not tough. Yeah. No. 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 I ain't a, I'm not hard. And just for you folks at home that don't know what Parks looks like, like he's a svelte, tall, in shape dude that looks like he could kick an ass if he wanted to. I don't know. Would you? Would? Would? Am I <laughs> Uh, me, I look like Spelt a, aspect. I look like a large baby. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but I, a sexy well, large baby. Comp- but I mean, you know, I've, yeah, I've, I'm not, I'm not that equipped to kick some ass, you know? Dude, yeah. If I was at a festival and shit started going Woodstock 99, right? I'd be like, okay, honey, like, let's go. And then like my buddy would probably be like, why are you calling me honey? Like, <laughs> and yeah, let's get the fuck out of here. <laughs> But uh, 
Yeah, so I don't know. It doesn't seem to be going well. And yeah, I, like when Michael Lang first even mentioned or, or entertained the idea of doing another Woodstock, it was at um, Desert Trip Festival, which was put on by Golden Voice, who does Coachella and, and you know, a bunch of other things. And um, that was like a classic rock, like superstar fest. So each day was just two acts. And it was like Paul McCartney, Rolling Stones, The Who, Roger Waters. Uh, uh, I think Bob Dylan played and, and Neil Young. I mean, it was, right, I and, and he like probably went there and I mean, that was a smash hit. It was like two weekends and and he was like, wow, like this can be done. Like, this is what I could do now. But like, no, you mm-hmm. can't like those guys have been like putting on show. It took them like years and years and years of throwing Coachella's to get to a point where they could book a show with like that many all-star crazy acts. And like, no, you, right. you just can't, you just can't jump into it. It's a different time, dude. But uh, I appreciate his, mm-hmm. his effort <laughs> and you know, I'm, you know, still curious to see what the next yeah. story that comes out is. But yeah, ticket sales as of right now are delayed due to a uh, lack of permit to yep. throw this festival yeah. in general. Yeah, so you, you'll definitely you can count on us. We will keep you updated on these uh, these little these little happenings with the, this new festival. Yes. And uh, yes. OK, but um. But yeah, let's go. Let's go back to '99, and let's kind of, in spirit, go back to '69. Uh, yes. Gonna, yes. This now is a, this is an interesting episode today. I mean, we're we're in here, maybe not the most exciting sets, but but we've we found we're gonna glean something out of it. No, oh, definitely, and like I mean, the reason why we we're calling this one uh, the most least '69 vibes is because it literally has the most and the least. 69 vibes at the exact right. same time it's it's yeah. insane so if you remember uh where we're starting off now we're starting off on the west stage the second stage um we just had uh ice cube i believe and now it is mickey hart's planet drum and uh the time we're looking at is about 755 is when it was slated to start they have a huge setup so i'm gonna guess they probably didn't start until a little after that um, mm-hmm. you know, like with most of the acts and it goes until nine ten. pretty long set, uh, in, in comparison to some of the others. Um, so right. An hour. Well, they, they did an encore. That's the, that's the crazy thing. And not a lot of bands did. I don't, I don't, right. I can't remember another one. I mean, with so the exception we, of like I White Clef doing, discovered one. Do, oh, okay. yeah, yeah. doing the Janis <laughs> Joplin with, with Diana. Right. My name is Diana. <laughs> Right. Well, he did a five minute encore on a 15 minute set. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. No, you just played another song, bro. Yeah. OK. So Mickey Hart, uh, he's best known as the drummer of the Grateful Dead uh, from the years 1967 up until 1995. He left the band for a little while, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, he's also a world renowned musicologist. He is an expert in world music, music from all around the world. Um, he has, he's collected music and, and compiled records for the Smithsonian, the library of Congress. He is a, a very, very much respected member of the music studies community and academia. As far as that stuff goes, um, interesting life, you know, both his mother and father were performing drummers. Uh, so he was always into drums, but his interest really peaked when he saw footage of his father, who was estranged from the family, uh, performing at the 1939 world's fair. Um, that's crazy. The world's fair is kind of a crazy thing. Uh, yeah, but, and it's crazy that he even saw footage. I doubt there is audio 
<laughs> but just the fact that, you know, like he was destined to be a drummer. And you could argue that Mickey Hart might be one of like the drummers. Um, just because of how far he's taken it as as far as you know, studying music and traveling the world and seeking out different rhythms and everything in his life is all about rhythm. Uh, that's another thing we'll get to. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, the band is called planet drum. He, he will, he tells you about the drums, but you know, I'm with it. I'm, I'm into that. Drums are cool. Dr- Damn. Yes. Drums are cool. Hey, drums are cool. Drums are very cool. It's you a- ever, you ever just been bored in school? You just, you know, you just start, Tapping your chest, you get that pencil, you just start drumming along, you know. Dude, bang, 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 bang. It drum. Uh, when I I used to play the drums and uh, I took drum lessons and stuff. And when I started, I was a kid. I was like, you know, sixth or seventh grade, and my grandma got me a shirt that had like all these different drum sets on the back, and on the front it said, "It's all about the drums." <laughs> <laughs> and that that shirt is very much like in the spirit of of Mickey Hart. <laughs> Yes, yeah, it it is. So 1961, he drops out of high school to enlist in the Air Force uh, because the Air Force has a a pretty pretty big deal, uh, big band that they do. It's it's a historical big band. Uh, you know, they play a lot of swing and stuff like that. Um, they're called the Airmen of Note. They're it's very prestigious, and he was a drummer, uh, one of the drummers of that. Um, a few years after joining the Air Force, he was reunited with his father through a meeting that was set up by Remo Belly, the founder of Remo Drums. Uh, his dad was a, a sales rep for them, and Remo was supplying the drums for the Air Force, yada, yada, yada. They got together and they started the Heart Music Center in San Carlos, California. Now, I don't know if you know anything about wrestling parks or uh if you folks at home do but if you know bret hart one of the greatest wrestlers of all time um Mm -hmm. yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. and 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 his brother owen uh his dad was also a really gnarly wrestler and they would grow up in in, like training all the time and it was super fucking brutal and and they called their basement the, the dungeon i believe it was called and and they would just like go in i mean he would beat the shit out of them and and they're like crying and they like break them, but he made them like two of the greatest wrestlers of all time. And I picture like the Heart Music Center being like the, like the Heart Foundation, you know, like what what the Heart Foundation was to WWE. That this is to right. that. And it's just like no, you fucking drum. And they're just like crying, like busting out paradiddles, like until like their sticks Isn't break. That- <laughs> Wasn't that that movie uh, Whiplash about like a really mean drum teacher? Oh fuck, that's right. <laughs> oh yeah, dude. And the drum teacher he plays, um, oh, I can't remember his character's name, but he's in that show Oz. He's a, he's a great actor. He, he's in yeah, well, he's yeah. in that show Oz as like a as like an Aryan dude that that like it does terrible things. Uh, but anyways, yeah, and also a drum teacher. Wow, you could really cross connect that universe. So after that, uh, through a roommate he met. Uh, it, like he had, he had a roommate. He, he was living in San Francisco after starting the music center. And uh, one of his roommates brought him to a Count Basie concert at the Fillmore in San Francisco, where he met founding members of the Grateful Dead. Uh, he joined the band and, you know, the Grateful Dead's reputation precedes itself. I mean, everything from acid tests to, you know, drug rings to this insane following to, you know, overdoses and and groupies and just cult aspect weird crazy shit and also just like you know legendary concerts and you know it's it's crazy 
Uh, they have a really crazy story that that's its whole other thing. There are literally dozens of podcasts about the Grateful Dead. They they really do have a good and a good story. There was that uh, Scorsese six part. Uh, I think it was for HBO. Maybe he made a six part uh, documentary. Each episode is about forty five minutes long. And even if you're not a huge fan of the Grateful Dead, uh, it's definitely worth checking out. Just it, it just kind of contextualizing them as this like crazy American pop like pop culture phenomenon right yeah no it, so. it's insane so um you know Hart he, he left the band in 1971 and it came out years later when other members started kind of telling telling their stories that Hart's dad had embezzled about seventy thousand dollars from the band that and Ooh. Hart was doing uh heroin and what they called quote-unquote dark drugs because these guys were like through and through weed, acid, mushroom guys. Like, yeah, they like the nitrous too. Oh, the nitrous. They, like <laughs> they they like them some nitrous. Say what you want about the guys, but they could handle their nitrous. Uh, so yeah, but then he rejoined the band in 1974 through 1976 before the band took a long hiatus. Uh, he began, you know, he he became interested in and began studying world music and traveled to dozens of countries to surround himself with different types of music, predominantly rhythm-based music. So you're talking lots of percussion, hand drums, banging a rock on the ground, using your body, whatever he could find that was rhythm-based, he just was fascinated by it always, on a different level than, say, someone that's just like a really famous drummer would be. Um, and yeah, you know, right. like I said, he's been, you know, he, he's done collections and, and things for the Smithsonian, the library of Congress, um, and his solo project that he, he came out with in 1991 was planet drum, which was just a eclectic mix of different world music brought into this, you know, huge jam band kind of atmosphere. And they won the first ever world music Grammy, uh, which was mm. in 1991. And Ooh, and world music is absolutely a tie tied into the nineties in terms of yes. lexicon. Well, because that, I, that, and again, the first that Grammy big umbrella genre. Yeah, yeah. The know. the first Grammy for it was in nineteen ninety one. Yeah. So yeah, it's definitely very nineties. It's very hacky sack. And also like okay, if you're But I'm not gonna rip on it too hard. No, no, no. I'm not I'm not gonna not rip on it either. Crazy about it. It's 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 interesting stuff, at least. I mean, and I do like the Grateful Dead. No, well, okay. So. Well, here's the thing with, with world with world music, you can't rip on it because if you do, you're racist. Uh, because it's <laughs> it's right. Yeah, it's, it's versus, more about, you're talking shit on people's cultures if you talk shit on world music. Right. Well, I guess it, I guess the thing is, is that there it definitely became world music did sort of become this sort of bland uh, blend. I would say when right. because world music. I, I do feel like sort of means this thing where it's like, okay, we're going to take all these genres and we're going to have this sort of like come together now, you know, all these genres together are going to be blended and that, you know, we'll experience that with this. And, you know, we've got, um, Christ, what's it? The on my way guys, uh, rusted roots. Uh, coming oh, up. Yeah, yeah. We, we, you, you have these, um, examples of where it does kind of become sort of this smooth jazz sort of blend that, you know, maybe isn't as unique as the the genres that they're taking from. But again, it is, you know, it's a cool, it's a, it's an interesting attempt at what they're doing. I, I don't want to be so cynical as to be like, wow, world music sucks. You know? <laughs> no, 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 no. But like what world music sounds like, it sounds like music from any other country. 
like than America. Like if you're just like, oh, like have you heard like this like cool like Zimbabwe music or like oh like have you checked out this stuff from Brazil? Like li- like world music done right sounds like it could literally be from any country in the world except for like Europe and and North America. Like you True. like there's like right. no way to pinpoint it. Um, but yeah, right. it's it, it's a it's a very uh it's a very sixty nine vibes the, thing. The in the quotation marks. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, world right. world music. And you know, it it has to, and that's another thing. It has to be done by someone like not of the culture. Like that's why it's perfect for Mickey Hart. He's like, "Yeah, no, dude. He's like, if I was just like a guy from like Nigeria, I'd just be like making Nigerian music. But I'm Mickey Hart from right. America, so I'm making world music." Like that's kind of like <laughs> Right, right. Right. Um also, uh I'll note uh that Mickey Hart is the only Jewish member of the Grateful Dead. So, all right, moving on to the cool. yeah, yeah, interesting. Uh, moving on to the set, uh, it, he's got a massive stage setup. There's two mega drum sets, a massive standing percussion set, uh, a a mass. Oh, you know what? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna explain. I'm gonna explain this, and then let's talk about the interview really quick. Um, okay. Yeah. So you know, th- there's a guitarist, a bassist, multiple keyboards, backup vocalists, uh, standing single drum percussionist. It's it's really, really massive, and it's it's what you would expect from a group called Planet Drum. Planet but Drum. Yeah. One thing I've well, and you know, I did want to say, you know, because he there was two drummers of the Grateful Dead, right? Him and right. uh, Kreut, Bill Kreutzmann. So he's he's always been part of. It makes sense that there's going to be like two big drum sets because that's kind of like what he did. In the Grateful Dead as well, right? Just, just a little nerdy trivia there. But this time there's go there's three. But um, yeah, there's also you know one thing we forgot to uh, we forgot to mention was that the Grateful Dead played at the original Woodstock, right? And and that's that's major. Now, so he he is yes. the only actual OG alumni performing on one of the major stages, um, because right. we have John Entwistle who gets the emerging artist stage. Yeah, on the last day. Um, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. So the only person whose whose name actually is uh, is on the major stage. Right. So the, yeah. Yeah, I- exactly. And and it's and it's the second drummer of the Grateful Dead. Um but anyways, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. He is one of the innovators of world music, so he deserves to be there very much. So those interviews that we always talk about that MTV did with each artist or at least they tried to where they had built like a loft um, that looks like it's in like an office building, but it was actually on site. Um, they interview all, all the people and they interviewed Mickey Hart and, um, he has some kind of weird premonition esque things to say about the differences between Woodstock 69 and Woodstock 99. Um, yeah. And I mean, you, you kind of got to dig for it there, but knowing what you guys know now about Woodstock 99 and knowing what we know you can really play with this uh, in your head, but let's let's take a listen to Mickey Hart's uh, MTV interview. Well, '69 was all about chaos, you know, and and, and disorder, and uh, the PA didn't work. The lights, you know, were halfway there, uh, and nobody really knew what they were doing. But they had a it was a certain kind of spirit that was there, and that was uh, sort of uplifting. Now that was the fun of it. The yeah, chaos that was the fun of it. And the fact yeah. that it was a mess. It was a mess. Now, since this is not so much of a mess, do you think it might be a little less fun? Well, that's really hard to say. You don't know until the music really takes hold of the people and the event becomes, has a consciousness to it, has a head. Yeah, so there's a lot going on there. 
Um, but the main thing that we kind of picked up on, or at least I picked up on, was I think that so the interviewer asks him, you know, if it's going to be more polished and a clean machine, is it going to be less fun? And of course, you know, Mickey's trying to kind of promote his band, so he's saying no. Like once once you get the music in you and you know, then that's when the the crowd really comes alive. Um, so obviously he's talking about his set and he just wants to play his music and have people dance and have a good time. But when you take that, uh, those words in the context of like all these new metal bands, uh, let the music kind of take it. Like, everyone yeah, has a good time. Like crowd, <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they definitely got the music in them. And yeah, I mean, at this point there weren't fires yet, but so it just, you know, we try to find that foreshadowing when we can. Um, but yeah, the other thing I just noticed is he talks, he, he also talks about like the PA here is great uh, because that was one of the things is like the Grateful Dead's performance at 69 was kind of maybe infamously known as like the biggest stinker of the whole bunch. Like people <laughs> said it was really bad and they yeah, blame you know, you really don't PA. hear about it. You really don't hear about it that much. I mean, yeah, I've just read about how because it's like you can see videos of all the classic 69 footage, but you don't see any of the dead. And I think it's because it was just not a good show for them um yeah so yeah he's i mean he's, whatever he said it was bad there could there could have been a lot of factors into that I yeah mean, they that were kind probably of the fucked up. thing is sometimes their balance their chemical balance went way off whack and they they just would have crazy technical difficulties and just be out of tune couldn't right say, you know so that was it was the grab bag of doing a bunch of drugs and playing this kind of well music. you know like you you know it like can ruin a time for five guys having a good time on acid one guy having a bad time on acid. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like that's all it takes. Like if there's right. a <laughs> like you have patient zero of a bad trip and and that can just <laughs> fuck it up for everyone. And if it's like the drummer right. or or like if it's the mm -hmm. singer like everything's going to fuck up. <laughs> so, yeah, who knows. Right. Well, if you're on, if you're on acid and you're smiling, you want to be able to look at everyone else on acid and see that they're smiling. <laughs> and if they're smiling, then you keep smiling. But if one of them is making like a weird face, like they're going to throw up, then your face starts looking all weird. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> things aren't as fun as they once were just a half second ago. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's a, yeah, it's a slippery slope. And, you know, we don't condone the use of uh, illegal substances on this show. Um, so anyways, uh, <laughs> that's so funny also in that interview though it's it's to be noted that um they show footage of this girl who's painting a panel for the peace wall because they filmed a lot of the artists doing that they show a lot of that in the official woodstock 99 dvd vhs release and she is painting this thing and she's just like very um i'm gonna play it yeah, you, you just got to yeah. hear this girl. She's uh, she's kind of not not there. Um, I was inspired because Deepy Heart is coming to have a drum circle, the biggest drum circle, and that's what inspired me. I like drums. I like Mickey. That's that is sixty nine vibes <laughs> right there. That's a flower child. No, because if you if you listen to like like even though okay it, the difference between like. A flower child in 99 and a flower child in 69 flower child in 69 had like discipline in school and stuff and the object was to like educate yourself and 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 you know it's like if you watch interviews with hippies yeah there's some people that you know there's some really goofy ones where they use a lot of slang but there's also that like uh well i guess almost it's kind of like charles manson where they just they just keep going until it, it sounds like they know what they're talking about 
this girl's just like done because they didn't have nitrous in 1969. They they weren't like literally boring holes in their brain. They were taking acid and stuff and they could still articulate their point. This girl literally, I like drums. I dude, it's all about the drums. Yeah. Hey, I like drums. It's all about the drums. And I like Mickey. It's all about the drums. Uh yeah, I like the drums <laughs> and I like Mickey. <laughs> That's, if there's two things she knows. Hey, you're she knows what she likes. Yeah. All right. <laughs> we're giving her a hard time. She likes drums and she likes Mickey. Yeah. And we're, and we're gonna find out that Mickey likes drums too. Yeah. <laughs> and Mickey probably likes her. Yeah. <laughs> so it all comes back full circle. God damn. Full drum circle. Oh, you fucker. And this is such a positive goddamn episode so far. So yeah, um, <laughs> Mickey comes out and, and he says, uh, hey guys, life is good when the rhythm is right. Which he also says in that interview, which is really funny. Yeah. So that's like a slogan. Yeah. And he's wearing yeah. a T-shirt that says, it's the rhythm, stupid. Like, And he says that in the interview, too. Yeah, he's branding. Like, he, you, know, you know what he's doing? He was creating hashtags before hashtags. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, like, he didn't know to say hashtag, like, hashtag, it's the rhythm, stupid. Like, he didn't know to do that. So he just made it a shirt. Like, that's how you would make a hashtag back then. You wanted something to catch on, you would just wear a shirt with it around. Uh, and you know, for all the drugs, yeah, that's so true, right? And, and but for all the drugs and hard living that the that the dead did, he looks pretty good in ninety nine. You know, he doesn't look as he, as beat up as you'd think he, looks he would. Great, and he actually. still does actually. Yeah. He still looks. He's still a healthy yeah. guy. Um, yeah. His I, I, had a, I I want to say something about yeah Mickey Hart's appearance because yeah <laughs> again, given some of the you've seen some of the casualties. I mean, you had Buck Cherry, and I mean they probably started five years ago, and they looked like they had been a band for forty years. <laughs> And you've got this band, one of the most notorious drug-taking bands ever. And he looks great. And I, just, the thing I made a little scrawled note of was just like cool uncle. Well, that's, like, that's taking, when you are like, like, like you're like, yeah, your dad's like brother, and he just like he comes to you, he comes on the beach trip, but he like brings you like some crazy like gift from Peru or some place he's been, and he's just kind of like, you know. <laughs> Your dad used to really be like the life of the party back in the day. And then and then your dad's just kind of like, no, 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 like, stop. Don't don't mention that. Like, stop talking about that. Like, he's he's he like is, this, he's just Mickey Hart he is the so cool normal. Uncle. He's the cool uncle. Yeah, of he looks 99. very normal, but you can tell he's got maybe he's got like a little uh, twinkle in his eye, I guess is what I would say. Right. Well, I have uh, I have a, 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 a similar uh, view of him. But uh, but real quick, the, the rest of his band, they're in pretty traditional uh, what I would call world music wear, where it looks like it could be traditional clothing again from like any country because there's so many different elements thrown into it mm-hmm. that like like I like I like I don't know. Each member sings in a different language. Each one has a different kind of like head wrap or or jewelry or like things that look very traditional. Uh, and But it's all thrown together. So you're just like. This is the world. It's like Epcot, the band, uh, is is, yeah. is is kind of what, what it's like. Um, and the drummer, there's a, there's three drummers total. There's Mickey. There's there's then then two sit down drummers. And one of them, this cool dude, he's got um a backwards cabbie hat and like kind of like a golf shirt. He looks like if you're if you ever go into a music store and you just look at like the Zildjian symbols like roster or like Vic Firth drumsticks, like whatever roster they have, there will be guys that aren't from bands that are just famous drummers. And you're like, who's that guy? He looks like every mm-hmm. single one of them. Like, absolutely. Yeah. It, yeah. It, yeah. It's like a classic, like, Oh, you can play drums really well. Look or bass 
or guitar or anything that you would be sponsored by and you would just have like your name like Isaac D. Williams or whatever the fuck, you know, their name is. I just made that one up. Sounds right. real. Um, <laughs> the the crowd uh, itself is incredibly um, the derogatory term for it would be wook. Um, yeah. Where it's it's, you know, white dudes with dreads, tie dye flip flops. Everyone's dancing by themselves, but together. Mm-hmm. So it's like right. lots of stuff with your hands, lots of like like eyes closed, um, tons of cats, cat in the hat hats. I, I spotted like a yeah. dozen cat in the hat hats, people making <laughs> bubbles. Um, bubbles. I saw the bubbles. Yeah. Uh, classic dead stuff. Tons of Grateful Dead t-shirts, hats, bandanas, anything you can think of. Right. Um, lots and lots of weed smoking. Everyone has a pipe in their hand. And another thing I noticed that you might have noticed too, Parks, is everyone's whispering to each other. Like whenever it shows the crowd, like there's always a deal going on. Like someone's always in someone's ear, like, like how much for a tab or like how much for like, you yeah. know, like, like that's just what I'm saying. Cause it's like, why is everyone talking to each other during this? Like if you're not dancing like on acid, you're buying acid is what I was, right. is what I was getting. Um, yeah. I mean, the only other thing I could think is because the grateful dead has such a cult following that all, these super hardcore dead fans are like basically having a, a meeting during the Mickey Hart show <laughs> and comparing notes. Like, um, I don't know. I didn't notice that. I did notice. Well, so this is around the same time, almost exactly the same time as the Limp Biscuit set. So I think that the Limp Biscuit set had a ton of people. And I think that there really was like a good separation where there was like, Totally. Like, hey, what's going on? Do you want to go see Limp Biscuit or go see the drummer from the Grateful Dead? And so you get these really good crowd shots of like the Limp Biscuit, like that. At this moment, it definitely looks like two different festivals. Completely. The Limp Biscuit yeah. crowd shots are so intense and just so like, oh god, I don't want to be there. And then it's just like every single like person, like because the Grateful Dead is culty enough to where like there were probably people who literally bought a ticket just to go see Mickey Hart at Woodstock. That's the thing. It was, it was, was at Woodstock. Was probably right. Yeah. Mickey Hart at Woodstock was enough. And these people, you're not going to see them at the Metallica show. You're not going to see them at the Limp Biscuit show. You're not going to see them at the seven dust show. You know, well, that's they, what the West so stage is really all about all, though. You know, yeah. the West stage, right. what we've seen so far is really about the mellower stuff. Not, not completely. I mean, obviously ice cube just played, on it and like right. that's where like you know buck cherry played but but it it's still you know it seems like it's for the heads you know uh yeah, yeah. but yeah I, I, like yeah so limb biscuit is going on so that also took away anyone that like would have been like boo or like what or like show your tits like any of the assholes right because another thing right. that an- another highlight of this set is there are zero gropes that are visible from the pay-per-view feed i didn't catch a single woman being assaulted during this set and thank god for that uh, well, that's a first. I think that's a first. It's definitely it's definitely rare. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you know, like think about all the bands that we've talked about that are so mellow. And mm-hmm. and I mean, they're also, you know, they're, I mean, they're, not to say it didn't happen. Yeah, not to say it didn't happen. It just, but it just, it just but, wasn't. But I mean, dude, blatantly. I, I really think that that what you're saying is right. There was a parting in the sea where it was like Woodstock people go this way. Limp Bizkit people go this way. And yeah, and that's okay. why Mickey Hart said it's. It comes off like a good time, and also the sun is going down. So when they start, yeah. it's still light outside. They're still playing, but by the time they're done, it's like absolute nighttime, and it probably cooled off a ton. The music is a really good mix. There, there's only one 
problem. And it's like the second song, the the vocal mics go out for the backup singers, but that's it. And it was right. probably just like, oh, thank God I can like chill out, smoke weed. Like there's room in between people. We're not jammed. Like that was probably yeah. the place to be, but not really because then you'd be missing fucking, you know, Limp Bizkit and our, <laughs> and our next act. Um, just depend, it just depends on, yeah, who you are. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, yeah, it, I guess for that, for those reasons, it could, I could definitely see it just being like, wow, like a much welcome respite. Totally. But, you know, no, yeah, definitely. It's, and it's 69 vibes, 100%, possibly the most yeah. 69 vibes. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it is worth it. I would say it's pretty worth just if you want to like look up the video and then just because they're doing crowd shots. Like, I feel like the camera even knows, like, all right, we got to get a ton of crowd shots because, like, this is our chance to, like, make it look you know, like Woodstock. Make this shit seem like it was like Woodstock. So, like, there's a ton of crowd shots. And it is a very interesting, it's a great snapshot of, like, 90s hippie resurgence. Right. And, okay, so you said that he reminded you of Cool Uncle. I said that he reminded me of, like, Cool Elementary School Teacher that, like, travels around um, the world and, like, probably still right. does, like, psychedelic drugs and stuff, but comes back and is like, all right, guys, like, this is a djembe and like, it's like right, showing right. everyone. And it like, it reminds me of uh, the show Gullah Gullah Island uh, from Nick jr. From way back. Uh, the, the, like the whole set just like, I was like, dude, this guy, like, he's just like, all right guys, do you know what this is? It's a conch shell. Uh, but yeah, this is uh this is the Gullah Gullah Island theme song really quick. Come and let's play together in the bright sunny weather. Let's all go to Gullah Gullah Island. Gullah Gullah. Yeah, ugh, it brings me back. Right. Um, and it was funny, too, because yeah. when I was trying to find that theme song last night, that video, it's playing it, the, the video that I found plays the intro to the song. But some yeah. some weird fucking like Internet troll. Yeah, Internet troll. Like there's parts where it shows um, like framed pictures where like it has like a character in it and says their name. Instead of it being the picture in the in the frame, someone edited in like footage of Pearl Harbor Footage of a dog being put to sleep. Uh, the mm. the Bud Dwyer footage where the where the uh, politician killed himself on, on live television back in the day, like oh, Bud <laughs> like, like all that. And then it just goes back to the Gullah Gullah Island stuff. And I was like, wait, what the fuck? And yeah, it turns out it's like that's this crazy. brilliant troll. So, anyways, yeah, um, that's what. He, oh wait, but, real quick though, yeah, because because we got to Gullah Gullah Island. This is a detour, but I do. That <laughs> reminds me. So, um, so. The Gullah Geechee is like this kind of there's a group of people and they live uh, mainly in like Savannah, Georgia and like South Carolina. And I don't know a whole ton of, about them, but my friend um, Chris and my bandmate, he lives in Savannah. And so he is actually convinced and I think he might have some uh, credence to it that uh, George Lucas based his character of Jar Jar Binks, especially Jar Jar Binks' speech patterns on the Gullah Geechee. And um, that's just like this really yes, random I don't thing. Say. I, do, I don't know why that's stuck with me so much. Um, when did Phantom Menace, was that 99? That was, I think, 2000 or 2000. It might have been 99. I don't know. Yeah, anyway. Oh, no, yeah, probably because I, I read... Big detour. No, because I read... Um, Oh man, what was it? I think it was in the oh, Rolling it was Stone. 99. It was 99. Yeah, in the Rolling Stone, uh, they talk about them selling Darth Maul bongs. 
Right, right. Yeah. Oh, my God. You see? Why do we know all this stuff? We can talk about it. Yeah, well, (laughs) yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, why do we know all this shit? So anyways, um, you know, another guy in the crowd, again, this this set, because it's so, you know, it's just good. It's just like a good time. He's obviously not going to talk about people's titties on stage like Dave Matthews couldn't help himself. Uh, He's not going to, you know, he doesn't have a Joe C. There's not going to be a meltdown. There, there's, it doesn't give us anything like that. It's really about the crowd right. in in this one. Mm-hmm. Um, right. There's a guy I saw banging on cowbells and a hand drum in the crowd. And I was like, A, how fucking annoying. And B, how did he get those in? And I was like, oh, yeah, you could get in anything because the security were explicitly told to turn their fucking heads to security. And they're like, nope, like right. we don't need to worry about. Yeah. About that. Um, he, he in one song, he, he has like this huge like. Because Mickey Hart's setup is a stand-up percussion rig. So he's standing up, and he's got every kind of non-just traditional drum set drum you can think of. And he has a bunch of electronic drum pads as well, which he uses to make steel drum. Mm -hmm. Like, Yeah, (laughs) some of those sounds are are pretty interesting. Yeah. There's there's also a didgeridoo. It wasn't him playing it, (laughs) but there's definitely a didgeridoo there for a second. Damn. My brother got one of those for Christmas one year. And we were just like, thanks. <laughs> well, I, I've heard, and I didn't trust, but I, I heard that if you take acid, it really helps you be able to learn how to play it. That so. is out of control, <laughs> dude. Oh, my God. You concern me. Um, all right. So uh, their whole set, it, it kind of feels like one long song, um, except for yeah. the few exceptions where Mickey Hart actually sings. And one of the songs where he sings, yeah. he raps, and it's a Grateful Dead song, right? Yeah, it's Fire on the Mountain. So it's it's one of their, you know, one of their more popular songs. And he does this rap. And I, I my theory is because, you know, he didn't want to sing Jerry Garcia's Jerry Garcia's Sia's, sorry, lyrics or something. Um, maybe that was just something like, you know, because Jerry Garcia had only died a few years prior to that right yeah 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 so he comes up with this rap and it's it's super he died in what like like 95 i think is when jerry garcia yeah yeah and it's it's definitely i'll say of all the people singing mickey hart's vocals are definitely the my least favorite it's the most jam band white guy sounding lyrics well yeah and and, and the rap is just is weird it's, it's like it's, you know what it reminds right. me of it reminds me of like a tom tom club or something right. like that weird just but, like yeah. like like, oh, like like weird art punks trying to like like incorporate this new style of music called hip-hop like right you, you, but they but tom tom club did but it they did it good the 80s when yeah. hip-hop was but they, just but they did it good so, yeah no exactly that's what i'm saying so he's still doing yeah it's the it's it's that rhyming of the like, you know, like they first did it, it well. Went up, I'm sorry, yeah. and then it went down. You know, like <laughs> do grab your partner around the toe. It's yeah, it's like and, yeah, it's uh, like uh, yeah, totally. It's like line dancing, yeah, completely, yeah. <laughs> uh, or square dancing. I, I don't know which one that is. Um, so, but also, you know, he sings a song about Jerry Garcia, or about meeting him, and about his time in the dead. And the way he sings is kind of like this. And I saw him sitting there and Pox is talking to me and we're on the air. It, it reminds me yeah. of Rockwell, who did the song Someone's you know, Watching Me, where he's like, when I'm in the shower, I'm afraid to wash my hair. Oh, yeah. right, right, right. <laughs> it's like it's just yeah. really bizarre. And I'm like, OK, like 
This is why he only sang twice. Um, right. Because the yeah. drummer. Yeah. Not the singer. Yeah. And everyone else, you know, that that because there are vocals in every song. It's not just like a giant instrumental jam, which would be way harder to watch, I feel like. Well, I don't know. It depends. Mm-hmm. But uh, they're all singing in different languages and dialects. And, and it's like, you know, you can tell there's like kind of like nursery rhyme aspects to some of the lyrics and things like that. Um, but like overall it's, it's mega 69 vibes and that almost makes it haunting because it's like, um, it's almost like jaws when like, you know, the shark is coming, but like all the kids in the water, like, 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 come on, dad. Like, like they don't know. And you just like, like Mickey Hart and the whole audience are the kids playing in the ocean and the East stage crowd is the shark that they don't know is happening. God. Like, oh my god, that, that's yeah, yeah that's kind of how, how I see it. Um, but then, uh, they finished. The there's a kid, there's a kid in the crowd. Oh, there yeah. is a kid. Oh, I remember also- seeing that, being like, that is an actual child. And I think that that might have been one of the first instances of like an actual, like, child under the age of 10, like on like her dad's shoulders or something. Oh, buddy, I got another kid coming for you, dude. Next act, <laughs> dude. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, I got. <laughs> don't fucking get weird on me <laughs> you want kids i found another one yeah i do you want- all right well i i haven't i haven't yet so i'm curious okay when it was well, I anyway, hope it wasn't like, seven re- dust, like so real quick though in the mickey crowd backing up a little bit there's a part where the crane camera's going over the crowd and there's a girl dancing and the guy next to her like none of these like a lot of them don't have teeth like they all kind of look the same you can tell like yeah those are people that came with the explicit intention of going to see mickey hart and he looks at yeah. the camera and very clearly says, hi, mom, which to me is like <laughs> so like a like classic. But like yeah. also like that's a very like hippie 1969 like news footage thing to do. Uh, and, right. Yeah. And yeah. And, totally. yeah so it, it, the vibes were, were strong. The 69 vibes were strong with him. And after they finished the set, he walks off the stage where he is confronted by a full force like a completely full blown wavy gravy, like wavy gravy <laughs> in the daytime when he was like announcing on stage was wearing a Woodstock 99 T-shirt, a lanyard and a baseball hat. Now he's dressed like a fucking jester from like King Arthur's court. Like, yeah, that like got I mean, like he's he's gunning for this. He's ready for, it, for Mickey. Dude, he's stoked. Yeah. And he grabs him and he says, you were magic. You were magic. But unfortunately, the yeah. sample is so low because like Wavy Gravy wasn't mic'd or anything that like we didn't feel like we should play it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But then he goes back and they play an encore. His all of his yeah. songs are like seven minutes long. So it's it's, it's right. a long one. But it, it is interesting. It's to still to my knowledge at this point, the longest set. And they just have an encore and just crowd based. I will say. For even the size of the crowd being considerably smaller than a lot of these acts we've talked about, I felt personally like after every song, the applause was huge. Like the amount of people in the crowd were like so stoked about it. Um, And it made it seem like I was like at first like, oh, whoa, there's like a ton of people. And you watch it and there's not. But just like every single person there like wanted to be there. No, totally. It was it was. You know, and he delivered, and like almost every person in the band takes a solo during every song. It's like, like we talk about they're like high powered hippies. Well, we they're, we they're talk like about like um, their shit together, like Dave Matthews Band. We talked about it. Uh, we talked about it with like George Clinton, Bruce Hornsby, uh, Bruce Hornsby. Like there is there's a certain class of musicians at Woodstock '99 that are 
they just surpass everyone as far as actual technical skill go to the point where a non fan can just like watch them like like I'm not into like UFC or whatever, but when I watch like a guy get kicked in the face like three seconds into the fight and he knocks the guy out, like I'm like, holy shit, that was awesome. Right. You know what I mean? It's like that's kind of like what watching like Dave Matthews band drummer is or, or some of the people <laughs> in Mickey Hart's group. Oh, <laughs> or like, God. you know, I love like, how you like just a Bruce Hornsby set or like a Dave Matthews, Mickey Hart. Like that's literally like watching a guy get his ass kicked. It is awesome. <laughs> Even if you don't like violence. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, all right. So now we're going to jump over to the East stage. And this is going to be a tough one for uh, a lot of our friends. Um, not that we're going to talk shit or whatever, but like there also just isn't a lot to talk about in general. Um, this is a band that yeah. I personally actually really like, like still like. Like this is a band yeah. that. It's not like a Limp Bizkit or Corn or something where I'm like, yeah, like I actually like it. Like still, like I don't fucking care what right. anyone says. Definitely. This is a band where like lot like everyone still likes them, you know, and they yeah. could they could get back together tomorrow and it would be the biggest fucking thing in rock news. Rage Against the Machine playing on the East stage 925 at night. Uh, Rage Against the Machine. Let's do they it. Were, yeah, they were sandwiched in between, but they were after Limp Bizkit and before Metallica. Um, and this is part of this just decision to make these three just bands just known for their like heavy, aggressive, intense music play back to back to back. And, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting choice. Um, as Ryan alluded to raging Against the machine, um, they are a band that everyone likes and I'm, I'm not going to lie. Like I definitely in middle school and high school, like I loved this band. Um, the first time I heard Rage Against the Machine, like I distinctly remember it. Um, and it's weird because they, I don't know, the best thing I can say about this whole thing is like, it's just the, them being here is weird um, because they are on one hand are very much influential to new metal music, but they also like sort of don't really belong to new metal. Um, right. So they were they were they formed in L.A. in 91. Uh, it was following the breakup of guitarist Tom Morello's band Lock Up and Zach De La Rocha, the singer's hardcore band Inside Out. And a little trivia thing is that the band Inside Out, uh, Zach De La Rocha had written a song that hadn't been recorded yet for that hardcore band called Rage Against the Machine. And then those two bands broke up and they got together and at the same time, Tom Morello was kind of coming from this like shredder metal background and he was starting to get into funk. And then Zach De La Rocha was like a hardcore singer who wanted to start rapping. So they, right, yeah. kind, they, they kind of fit in with and were friends and contemporaries with bands like Tool and Jane's Addiction. So you've got that, I would say, like just the heavier or more bizarre side of grunge or alternative metal whatever you want to call it not quite like new metal but just you know definitely like really heavy music um but then they had that like rap and funk thing from the chili peppers but granted one interesting thing to note is like unlike the chili peppers like they they their lyrics were like completely like punk political totally like, yeah they're a serious serious band yeah right like and that's what's crazy is i was like thinking about like every single song they wrote 
was like a politically motivated song. Like they did not have love songs or party songs or. Can you imagine a Rage songs. Against the Machine love song, dude? Like a Rage love battle. Like they can't do it. I mean, they. I mean, they would have songs that like would. You don't know what of, you got till it's gone. <laughs> that was a terrible, like, terrible like, Zach De La Rocha impression. Sounds I'm sorry. terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I mean, I guess in that, but like they don't even like the songs that are sort of personal. It's like relating about like how my life sucks because the man brought me down. Like it's like it's um, but it's interesting because they like that was like their goal from the start and they signed to a major label Epic Records. Um, and, you know, from what I've read is like they didn't there was no attempt by the label to be like, you need to change your message. Um, and if you listen to that very first album, Rage Against the Machine, like, yeah, it doesn't it sounds like they said what they wanted to say, you know? Right. So well, it's all, that's, that's always been a weird thing weird with them because they've always been yeah. so like they've always had the reputation like their name is Rage Against the Machine. Like right. they're they've always been so like anti like capitalism anti you know profit like anti commercialization of of stuff monetizing you know art and people and and you know protecting the you know the common man and the better interest of humankind and stuff but they also play Woodstock 99 they also get signed to a major label i mean but back then it right. it, it was different because you could use that for good i mean there's some examples of people turning down labels now but like I feel like it's a lot easier to turn down like a thirty thousand dollar record label, like record deal, than it is to turn down like a four million dollar record deal. You know, right? Like I think yeah. of that band Gloss recently, who didn't want to get signed to. I think it was like Epitaph or something that was trying to sign them, and they were like, right. "No, that's not why we start." You know, which is cool, and like you can commend that, but like also, it's like you know, you could say the same thing with Rage Against the Machine, but they, they really, I mean, they like militarized a whole army of listeners. You know what I mean? In a way that most yeah. bands couldn't do. Like they, they really got like they got people to vote for sure. You know what I mean? Like right. they, they definitely had an agenda and managed to yeah push it. Right, and and I would, I would say that the you know it's it's definitely like a left leaning um, agenda, but they definitely weren't like even say I don't know they they like well for instance I know that they constantly criticized democratic president bill clinton they called him like i think i have a live recording where they call him like that dixie crap punk motherfucker so like they, <laughs> they didn't it's it's it is though interesting to think about a political ban especially in terms of the context now where like i i would be so curious to see like if a band in their youth and had that much like enthusiasm how like they would be treated now because i could I could see them, I could see people on the left kind of not being with their shit. I could see people on the right calling them like cucks. Yeah. Like I could totally. see how like the, everything is so like crazy now. Well, and back there's then, just been all these like little to take a stand, like, to take yeah. a stand like, like they did, you know? And the thing is, it's like, yeah, like of, of course, like, you know, they, they, cause they were very anti Bush, you know, they're, you know, members now are, 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 you know, outwardly, you know, anti Trump. 
But but the reason why they were against, you know, Clinton and stuff or had things to say back then was because they're against the machine, man. That's what they're raging against. They're not raging against the one political ideal or the other. They're raging against the machine. And no matter what side you're on, you're a cog in the wheel of the machine that's grinding us all down, man. Bulls on parade. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) see, rage, man, it gets you fucking amped. That's a that. Well, yeah. And I. As a sixth grader, I definitely relayed the shit to uh, shit out of <laughs> it. Really, um, he, as a sixth grader, really, we did not relate to what Rage Against the Machine was saying. Well, well, but then they they had fist pumping jams, and their most <laughs> famous, uh, probably their most famous song, "Killing in the Name," uh, ends with them going "Fuck you, I won't do what you tell me," mom, uh, like forty or fifty times. So that one was pretty easy to get behind. Um, but you say that, and I do want to play a little clip. Uh, from their interview, which their little backstage interview is only Tom Morello. So just in case you don't know, it's basically like Zach De La Roche is the singer. Um, and so he's very much like the mouthpiece of the band. And he is like the one who is the most politically motivated. But you can't find Dick for interview of this guy. No, like he was Tom never Morello about that, Morello is the like spokesman and he does every single. So this interview is just Tom Morello, the guitar player. Who, by the way, I don't think he has aged at all since 1990. <laughs> he still looks great. Yeah, he was born um, like 25, 27. He's going to die around that age, too. Right. Uh, all right, yeah, so yeah. Let's play let's this take a clip listen. real quick. You know, Marilyn Manson it just dresses up funny and, you know, and sings in kind of a scary voice. President Clinton kills civilians in Yugoslavia and Sudan and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. Again, and actually, yeah, talking about Clinton right there. And I guess this is because... That's <laughs> so cutthroat, band, dude. <laughs> right. But I mean, now again, when you put it in the context, I mean, this is like, there's Columbine and Manson. So like a right. lot of artists were, you know, had to be talking about Manson. That's what Manson, he was... Yeah. You know, right. yeah, he was absent from the festival. I mean, there's no way in hell he would have been able to play it. And so, you know, I think that is like, you know, an, an interesting... I guess they're more of like an interesting band in terms of just what they had to say that, you know, Tom Morello had some, some interesting things to say about the festival itself, which we will get into later. Um, But I also found just another random quote that I want to play just again with the times that I made me laugh. So let's hear that real quick. Yep. Y2K, the mysticism, the prophecy and stuff. I I know it's not a a main theme with you, but just, just guys talking. What do you think? Do you think there's anything to this end of the world business? No. So Tom Morello <laughs> was not scared of Y2K. Um, yeah, well, he had, though, the, he had the, the Norton backup going right. or whatever it was, the, yeah. the McAfee or whatever you had back then. And it's funny because that there, there hasn't been that much Y2K talk we've found. I definitely remember people talking the shit about it. I was scared it was as ha- fuck, dude. it was dude. about to happen. I was so um, scared yeah. and my dad was scared. He's like always been kind this of like interviewer a interviewer is definitely scared. And he's hoping that this guy who <laughs> is raging against the system maybe has some sort of backup plan for when his computer goes out. <laughs> he's but like, hey, he, man, Tom you, does not you give don't a think shit. this. You don't think this Y2K thing's going to happen. He's, right? he's raging against right? the machine. He has no time to to be uh, to back up bothered the by its failure. <laughs> <to> back <laughs> up the machine. Uh, but interestingly enough, Raging Against the Machine broke up in the year 2000. So maybe. Maybe he should have been a little more worried, but um, but yeah, basically this is an interesting time for the band, and I think that I think that I'll go ahead and say it. 
And I think Ryan agrees. This is not really a great set from this band that we've been talking about, who we both think is great. This is just not it. Actually, in the interview, Tom Morello even mentions that I think he says something like, well, the only thing they're talking about pressures like of being a famous band is like, well, the pressure we're experiencing is we're about to play a set on three hours practice. And I'm not sure why that is. I know that they were working on their third and final actual studio album of originals called The Battle of Los Angeles. And that came out in November of 99. That one's and so good. Yeah, and that one's great. And like they were still like they were definitely like a huge band. Um another big thing that happened was their song Wake Up played at the ending credits of The Matrix, which had come out in the spring of 99. Uh, I feel like that if if there had been any like lagging in popularity of Raging's Machine, like the combination that they were about to put out this Battle of Los Angeles album and the fact that their song was at the end of The Matrix, I felt like they were I mean they were still just like humongous. But what's interesting is that they did break up in 2000. And as a fan and as just a person that wants to know, I I have not been able to find a lot of information about exactly why they broke up. I think that they were like a very public band or a very private band. Right. Other than Tom, Tom Morello almost, he is like this weird sort of, spoke, like he, and he's a weird around way, though. He I like feel like he was in like, dad I love- of, yeah. of like rockers. And he, he gives <laughs> these very, he gives answers that's like, this is our ideology of the band. But you don't necessarily, like, even the way he describes the band in the interview, it's very much like, we're here, we're, like, ready, you know, to do what we do. But then they break up later, um, you know, citing, saying that they could not, their decision-making process had completely broken down. And so, again, you just, you don't actually, you don't really know why they broke up. No, yeah. At the height of their popularity. And, yeah, exactly. I mean, the singer, he's, like, a recluse. Like, he's, you can't find that guy. He's, like, a... Salinger or something. He he's a total recluse, yeah. um, which is awesome to me because he's probably just like fuck it. Like the entire system, like through which I can like spread my message, is bullshit inherently. So I'm mm-hmm. just going to you know I can survive on what I have, and that's it. <laughs> you know, there's yeah. there's something think, to that. I, do, I think that again to maybe make some guesses is that. So the other thing about Tom Morello is he likes to rock, kind of like Mickey Hart likes drums. Tom likes rock, and Tom likes to say rock a lot. And he's, like, constantly talking about how we are going to rock. And, again, <laughs> I love this guy as a guitar player, but he does sound really goofy when he's like, we are, re- we are fully functionally and prepared to rock this show tonight. And it's <laughs> really dorky. So I think that, I think the rest of the band, because then they formed that band Audio Slave with Chris Cornell right, right. after I, I think that there was probably a division where the band members were like, hey, we're like rock stars. Like, let's just like keep getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. And then I think that the singer was like, uh, you know, I was writing all these lyrics for a reason. You know, I don't want to do MTV stuff. I don't want to like. Right. I don't want like he, maybe he didn't want to play Woodstock because I don't know. He, he It's just not. Well, they even the, the, they even not said much to talk about the set because it's not really there. There's not that much. There's not that much good stuff in the set. It's not bad. But it's not really that good. No, but but the thing is with Rage, that's kind of like the charm with them being at Woodstock 99 is there's no like flash. They play extremely close together on stage. Like, I mean, they, they have a massive stage. They're extremely close together. Like they're they don't have a wall of amps or anything. They each just have like one amp that that's like mic'd up. 
And you know, and and they're they are up. I'm gonna say they're up for best dress though as a unit. They look fucking cool. Uh, Zach looks they amazing. Look cool. He's got like yeah. a button up shirt yeah. on with the fucking star armband. Just like right. he just looks fucking exactly how he should. Uh, Tom Morello right. wears the same outfit always. Uh, it seems, um, which is kind of his thing. And also, he has really long guitar strings. Like like, like he left so much slack like up by the yeah, tuners. He doesn't, cl- he doesn't clip them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which is like kind of an interesting look. He also plays a double guitar uh, at one point, and he has the words "Arm the Homeless" written. It's kind of a la uh, Woody Guthrie's uh, "This Machine right. Kills Fascists" kind of a deal. Um, and yeah, you know, basically looks cool. Drummer looks cool. They're cool. They, they're they're like one of the coolest bands to have played Woodstock '99, if not the coolest. Um, but yeah, the set itself is kind of lackluster, and I've heard from multiple people now. And, and from different sources that they were purposefully like turned down, especially the guitar, mm-hmm. because Lim Bizgat had gotten everyone so riled up and they still needed to have Metallica play that they needed to like keep it a little more mellow. So mm-hmm. they did that by having the volume lower. Um, Interesting. And yeah. And I mean, I guess also just, you know, they they it could they could have very possibly been hanging around during the Limp Biscuit set, watching it from side stage or something. And. You know, that that could have been this one of those things where like, oh, I'm not maybe necessarily like comfortable with like being in that scenario or, you know, who knows? Or I mean, also like they we've known now that the bassist of Rage Against the Machine has gone on record to say that he apologized that uh, Rage Against the Machine ever had anything to do with influencing Limp Biscuit. So, I mean, oh, man, there's always so been brutal. a Rage Limp Biscuit beef. So, I mean, who knows if I don't know. Because you I mean, have still, like when it's your turn to shine. You got to you got to be on that stage and do it. Um, yeah, well, it's because you I have don't... the guys that are so serious that are like starting a fucking movement. You know what I mean? Right. Not a music movie like beyond that, that like take themselves so seriously that are so smart. And then you have like Limp Biscuit, who, you know, not to say they're they're not smart guys, but they were going for something totally different. They're like the party band aspect. And they were like, you know, like, hey, like, don't you want guys want to hang out? Like, you know, kind of like the new yeah. kids on the block do like, yeah, doing like this demonized right. version, like this total like fuck up version of of what they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I can totally see why Rage Against I can see why Limp Biscuit would love Rage Against Rage Against the Machine. Sorry, getting ahead of myself there. And fucking vice versa would not be the same. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? And that reminds me of actually this uh, the infamous stunt at the 2000 MTV Music Awards. Oh, where, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Rage and Limp Bizkit were both up for best rock video and Limp Bizkit won. And the bass player again. So maybe it's just maybe the bass player really hates Limp Bizkit. <laughs> he, he, went and, he climbed up onto the scaffolding of this like set piece and started rocking it back and forth, which now that I like work in that kind of environment, I'm like, oh man, he probably like he's very lucky he didn't like break it and like fall off because he's oh like, totally and he's like shaking air. it and stuff, yeah, yeah. And they had to like he got arrested, but apparently like yeah, like everyone else in the band was just like no, like don't do that. And then it was you know I think like oh man, I'm looking like a month later is when they made an official announcement that they were breaking up. <laughs> Um, maybe it was just the basis your your hate for limb biscuit has gone too far this time i i will say also just i'm harping on this because i remember a few years ago the bass player did a series of interviews uh tim comerford is his name uh in which he was promoting a new album and he was also denying that the moon landing ever happened (laughs) 
<laughs> Dude, he's raging against a different kind of machine. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's the thing is I'm like, okay, like, yeah, I wonder, like, just like, because I'm like, now you're getting into this, like, interesting Alex Jones territory. Of just, yeah. And like, everything's a fake and a conspiracy. And it just, again, they, they are, they are such a 90s band in terms of like, it was kind of like they just did the message and then like people were into it. And then like, it just seems so straightforward with them. Like they were being successful in 1992. They made the music playing inside of the car that had a bumper sticker for their message on it. You know what I mean? It's like, they were like that, like hard, like, especially like, I feel like, like Pacific Northwest, like in like nineties, like just like activists, like, that they were they were both the band and the bumper sticker for sure right um and they were they were a huge fan or they they were big proponents of a lot of different causes and uh actually even in that Tom Morello interview uh he talks about this group that they support called Shining Path which I was looking up a little about that and I mean Shining Path is like an interesting thing cuz they they definitely supported like communist groups and like some of these groups are you know were called even like militant or guerrilla or terrorist groups so now <laughs> i don't i don't know a, a ton about shining path but it is it's interesting that this group has been labeled like a terrorist organization by some people again i mean that would probably you know you need a good bit of research to see what that's all right no but it just goes to show it's like yeah they're like deeply invested in in the message you know what i mean like to the point where it's like like for good or for bad like you know promoting like a a, a clandestine militant group you know what i mean like it's extreme like it doesn't matter if it's for the right reasons or not it's like that's just like your your beliefs are at like as high as they can go you know like you then yeah yeah but then almost to, to talk about the settle to get in there they to sort of maybe where the cracks were showing is that they start the set off with a song called No Shelter, which was actually a song that was included on the Godzilla soundtrack. Yeah. And it's it's almost like one of those things where you're like, that's a little weird. You like wrote a song for the Godzilla soundtrack. Um, I don't know. Maybe yeah. I'm looking too much into it. Well, no, it's like, no, it's like, cause I mean, it seems like we're like trying to call them out on all these things, but it is fucking weird when you're all about not that. And it's like, yeah, like Godzilla starring Matthew Broderick, like, and you're going to fucking give like your song. That's probably about like children, like refugees or something. You right. know what I mean? Um, right. but and I, I'm, and I'm not trying to talk shit. No, I mean, no, no. But these are things that need like, to be called out. <laughs> so, there are, there are plenty of bands there are plenty of bands that have far more like extreme viewpoints. So I do think that part of their success was that even though that they were like pushing a boundary, they were pushing like a mainstream boundary as far as like how much right. stuff can yes. you hear in a mainstream rock song that is, you know, an anti-government or anti-establishment. There, there are plenty of bands that are saying they were perfectly, they perfectly balanced it. Um, yeah. So, but first song back to the back to the bad stuff. Uh, yeah. First song, shoulder titties with the grope. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. so right right back at it. We we were safe with Mickey Hart. Back to rage, not so much. Also, uh, there's a lot of stage potatoes on one side of the stage. Lots of people watching them, including what I'm guessing is a age ten year old girl, uh, a a ten year old girl. She maybe even a, l- a little younger in a, a little oh. a little girl's sundress as one would wear at a summer festival. Uh, on stage watching Rage Against the Machine. I don't know if she's one of the guy's daughters or if she's just what, but they're, yes, so you spotted a child in the pot 
filled crowd of acid freaks at Mickey Hart, I spotted one on stage during I during mean, Rage. If I was a kid at Woodstock '99, I'd rather be on stage and very close to the backstage. Oh yeah, than, totally. Uh, than in the crowd, totally. So. Craft services, being on the stage, <laughs> yeah. not not being near Damn drunk slices. people. Because when you're a kid. People that are drunk are very scary and confusing. Mm -hmm. Like, cause yeah, you don't yeah. understand. Like, you just smell this weird thing and you know they're acting kind of weird. And it's like, like almost like Frankenstein to you is the only thing that you have to relate it to mm -hmm. is like Frankenstein's yeah. monster. Um, right. And yeah, so the, the mix is low. Uh, yeah. And that was to, you know, not overstimulate the already unruly crowd. Right. Um, cause they're still going crazy. They're still like moshing, like, the crowd is still just whipped into a frenzy. The crowd is raging Even against the machine. And yes. also, though, we've heard this. I've heard this, you know, a couple times now from different, you know, different survivors. The pit for rage is reported to have been, if not the gnarliest, the, the second craziest, you know, next to corn. Corn is, is supposed to be the absolute craziest one. It was all the jumping. People were getting their ribs broken, wrists, fingers, things like that. If you fell, you were going to get stomped. Uh, Limb Biscuit was also a big jump fest, but it was also more about crowd serving, more about pushing, and it was just too full. I feel like, uh, you know, even though the crowd does look fucking crazy, Rage it looks mellow, but apparently it was like the the nastiest one. And the proof of that is in the very front row where the Peace Patrol are, the security guys that you see in the front row of all the sets that wear the yellow shirts. They're now joined by a platoon of guys in teal shirts and those are the medics so now the front row is right i mean they, they brought them in probably because after limb biscuit they're like whoa after like, we need biscuit, you guys everything here. is everything's kind of getting like out of control right like really on the verge of it and yeah so you, yeah i i have to remember that too that this is after limp biscuit and right and think some some bad stuff went down and they're trying to prop you know they're thinking because there's a the whole thing where like they're like, oh man, like Limp Bizkit, you might, you guys might have like started a riot. The cops might be looking for you, and then, but they still have these two incredibly popular bands that are supposed to play, and they're both and notoriously to... heavy. It's like, right, like Limp Bizkit again. It's like they're kind of like a party band. You know what I mean? It's like they're like, yeah, like they had songs like Break Stuff, but it's so simplistic that people were just like having more fun than actually being angry. Whereas right. Rage. It it's an it's a genuine anger that 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 the fans are feeling that's like that's feeling the, the pit. rage, you know? Yeah, mm -hmm. the, the rage. Yeah, it goes back to it. And it's like, yeah. you know, now they're thinking about shit like, like fuck authority and, and they're they're really getting into like the you know anti-government. Like now I'm not going to break some shit now because I'm being done with my friends while we're listening to Lim Bizkit. I'm breaking shit now because like society owes me for how fucking badly they've treated us as people and right. citizens of this country. Right. You know, it, it becomes this different mm -hmm. thing. And it becomes way right. more intense and people start like really thinking about like, like rather than like thinking like, man, my job sucks. Like Limp Bizkit was telling you like, you got job problems. Like now you're thinking like, but why does my job suck? Why does the entire structure of jobs <laughs> suck? Society right, sucks. Right. Ah! And right. then, you know, fuck you. I right. won't do what you tell me. Exactly. And then it's over, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's, yeah, a, it's man. a way more Ooh, violent. Deep. Yeah. Well, it's a way more violent um, crowd. And like the, the rather than Metallica a, will just make you think about death. Yeah, uh, yeah. After. Well, um, Metallica. Yeah, actually, by the time we get to them, you'll find that most people are tuckered out. Yeah, it's late for them, and but um, you but you're saying that, and that's that is interesting thing because the only I found some stuff I didn't get quotes uh like audio clips, but um Tom Morello again the 
freaking mouthpiece of rage uh he did some interviews and he's hit one of some of his uh opinions on woodstock are uh amongst the ones that are like often quoted um there's a couple things he said and this is him commenting after the whole thing's gone down and there were the riots and stuff and uh he referred to the riots as a sweet revenge against greedy promoters that wrung every cent out of thirsty concertgoers. So he was like very, you know, aware of like the prices and stuff. And um, so he's basically saying that like, he, he, oh, he also says it was a good old fashioned, healthy riot, one with a killer soundtrack. Um, so he, he, <laughs> yeah, well, Tom Morello, he had, he had also said things how, um, He's like, he said, I've had enough of the demonization of young people surrounding Woodstock. Now, he did also go out of his way to condemn anyone who did any kind of sexual assault. Um, so I don't know. It is a fairly like well-rounded like comment on the festival, I would say. Yeah. And I mean, again, it's weird that they accepted to play it, but I can also understand the mentality of like, well, if we play it, we can say fuck you to their face. You know what I mean? Right. And yeah. and that's so, you know, there's something to that. And also like, well, you know, Woodstock in itself, which actually I mean, but we've disproven this, but people don't know in general that like, you know, the original Woodstock has this idea of, oh, well, it was all about peace, love and music. It's like, no, they were trying to make money to re to open up a recording studio. You, you know what I mean? It's like right. it's always been profit driven, right. but that, that wasn't the narrative uh, until podcast 99 came out. But so, you know, I can see them playing it thinking like, well, you know, it is in the spirit of the original Woodstock and, you know, that'd be cool to be a part of that next year's, you know, the year 2000, there's that, that's kind of a cool thing. Like there's reasons I can see the reasons for and against playing it. And, uh, I'm glad that they did, but yeah, it's, it's not that there's really not a lot to talk about as far as the music that, goes. Yeah. I mean, if there's, there are definitely other documented instances of like much better performed Rage Against the Machine live shows if if you are like a fan of their music. Right. Yeah. Um it's but it's yeah, it's 69 vibes in that kind of the other side to the hippie thing was like right. We we're going to do a protest and so in that sense it it does have kind of a maybe some maybe they could have been a band that would have Yeah, it's it's 60 it's 69 vibes done in the utmost 99 way yes you know the, that, the proto new metal oh i have a i have we'll a note rap rock right yes definitely I, and i have a i have a note here it says the crowd looks like a swarm of maggots eating a dead animal in a time lapse oh uh my god yeah i was just i i think i might have just been on one um you might have been you might have ventured over from the mickey hart set and uh, <laughs> yeah i got kind of a little bit of a contact uh yeah i don't think that was water they were spraying on us um yeah. also interesting to note about the set uh is that they don't they don't speak at all in between songs right also um their song bulls on parade one of their one of their big big hits that's the song that's included on the woodstock 99 vhs dvd i always like to Mention what song, because the way that that DVD is, is there's intermittent clips of people on the grounds walking around. There's some good stuff there uh, that will be, you know, when we get towards the end of our actual timeline coverage of the festival, we'll do like just a whole wacky 
blooper, like Woodstock 99 blooper reel, where it's all the fun, wacky people that we weren't able to fit into right. the actual right. shit because there's, there's some good stuff there. But yeah, it, and then it shows like a lot of the bands, not every band, but a lot of them playing one song. Um, right. So that's the song for for them. They end their set with their big song, Killing in the Name, you know, the Killing in the Name of the... That's the, the fuck you... Yeah, fuck you. Yeah, the, it's the it's the quintessential Rage Against the Machine song, um, and at that point, the bassist who in both the amps I believe have um, American flags draped over them. At least the bassist does for sure. And there's you know anti-government messages and, and things written on it, um, like you've been lied to and and things like that. And he sets it on fire, and the entire amp goes ablaze. That's the first instance of fire <laughs> that we've seen, I, I believe. At at Wood at Woodstock ninety nine, yes, um, yeah, and it won't be the last. Oh man, nobody, oh, we got more fire for yeah. you. Um, and another interesting thing, like I said, they don't talk in between any of their songs. They also don't say thank you when they're done. They right. they finish the song. Dun, well, dun, 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 mm-hmm. dun, that's it. Walk the, off the stage. The only thing that's kind of like talking is that so they do this thing. There there's this guy Leonard Paltier who was in prison and a lot of people kind of rallied around him and said that he was innocent and that in part he was being discriminated against because he um, had native American heritage. Uh, I think it was like a murder trial. Anyway, I know, I know about this guy literally because of rage against the machine and they would always talk about this guy and say he was innocent. And it was really the only thing that kind of counts as banner is uh, Zach does this speech ish thing where he's talking like yes. 20 years and he's still, but the thing that you realize is like, this is still kind of a script and he, it, it I don't know if you could consider it banter or almost like a spoken word intro. I think it's an and, intro. And, uh, and uh, that's, but that's literally like the only words spoken in between songs is like this kind of prepared intro. So yeah, not a lot of talking. Right. But also rage isn't the kind of band that I would expect them to be like, how you feeling tonight? Right. Or like, like, yeah, fuck yeah, Woodstock. Let's hear, because I feel like, in their eyes, knowing what they knew about Woodstock '99 going into it, and and what they what we all know about it coming out of it, I feel like they felt like any time a band was like, "What's up, Woodstock?" or like, "You having a good time at Woodstock?" They're just plugging this brand, you know, and falling into the 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 chains of the corporate overlords that were throwing the event in their eyes. You know what I mean? They're like, fuck that. We're not even going to say it when we're on stage, right. you know, that, yeah, but again, that, that could just be a stretch, so but they still know. played it. Like, yeah. That's what I mean. It's like, but they still played it and we don't know how much money they got from it, but some of the numbers we've seen for some of these other acts, I mean, shit, if ICP got a hundred thousand dollars, yeah, no rage against the machine got at least 500. Yeah. They weren't raging against that check. I'll tell you that. Yeah. And, I mean, maybe maybe that's kind of how like that's the weird. That's why it's an interesting band is like they were able to exist for a while doing this message, but they got so popular at it that eventually it became yeah. counterintuitive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so that's it. That's it for for today, though. That That's that's the rage and, and Mickey Hart set. Uh, next episode will be the closer of of day day two of Woodstock 99. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. It's yeah, incredible. Yeah, I'm so I'm so glad to be done with this day. It's well, a lot of ups and downs. No, this is like this is the best day. The <laughs> day day three is seriously just like doozy after doozy. Um, we wanted to quickly just say thank you to everyone listening and and hanging in there. 
Uh, thank you, everyone that is subscribed to our Patreon. If you have not yet, it's patreon.com slash culture dumps. We have a couple different options for you there. We post exclusive episodes that you can only hear there. We have watch along tracks that you can watch at Woodstock 99 set and then listen to us with it. So it's like we're all hanging out together in this uh, mm-hmm. this endeavor. Uh, I also just uploaded a bunch of never before seen pictures from Woodstock 99 that a listener was kind enough to send us. There is some great stuff there and I'm going to keep putting it up. That's at the lower tier. You don't even have to go all the way in uh, to see that stuff. And it is definitely worth checking out and it helps us out a lot. Also sharing the podcast, telling people about it. The 20th anniversary of Woodstock 99 is coming up. If you want to be the coolest guy or coolest gal at the party, you need to, you know, have these anecdotes to pull out. Be like, you know, today's actually the 20th anniversary of Woodstock 99. Oh, who played that? Well, well, but now all of a sudden everyone's fucking up on you. That That's how it worked <laughs> out for me. That's how it works out for us. <laughs> uh, no, these are the big secrets of these Woodcock, this podcast 99 boys right you here. Just, were you about to we say know, Woodstock but then the misspeak info. and say Woodcock? I feel like that was about to come out of your mouth. I heard you like, oh, those woodco- um, uh, those podcasts. Uh, I was just demonstrating how cool I am for being in this podcast. That's what I was doing. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, yeah. Demonstration accomplished. All right. So, yeah, yeah. Next episode, we're going to finish up. If you went to, worked at, or played at Woodstock 99, please contact us at podcast99official at gmail.com or on Instagram at podcast99. We're also on Twitter now at podcast991. Thank you for listening. And also, real quick, I'd have to give a special thanks again to our producer, Gray Holger at Contradict Sound. Thank you for all of your technical assistance. All right, guys. This is Ryan Lichten here with Parks Miller. We'll see you at Woodstock.